0: Father, thank you for the great group that's gathered here early on a Sunday morning. We're mindful of your disciples who on another Sunday morning, early in the morning before daylight, sought for you and found an empty tomb. And we've been rejoicing on the first day of the week ever since that they found a risen Savior. Father, we long to know you. We long to know the power of your resurrection. And we long to let your word do its work within us. So help us to be careful. Uh, to let it do its surgery today, to not be like one who looks in a mirror and then goes their way without making adjustments. Uh, Father, we commit this time to you as uh, hearers of the word and that we would indeed be doers then of the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know um, if you've ever heard of the shipwreck of the Royal Charter at Mulfree in the British Isles. The year was 1859. The ship was a steamer and it was entitled the Royal Charter. It was bound for Liverpool and many of those on board had been on since Australia where they were mining for gold and the ship was laden with wealth. There were 452 passengers on board and um, the seas got very, very rough when they were near to home. And so they came to a point where there was, they were within sight of home, and there was a little inlet there um, where the captain decided to take shelter in this inlet just off of Mulfry. But there, as he set anchor trying to ride out the storm, the strain of the storm drove the Royal Charter's stern onto the rocks, They say that the waves were so tumultuous that the ship struck the rocks just 50 yards from shore and the ship steamer broke into two sections. Many of those, just 50 yards from shore, tried to swim through the rough stormy waters and the rocks to get to shore and some of them uh, filled their pockets with gold and they sank and they drowned. It is said that 28 men from Mulfree right there in the inlet formed a human chain, risked their own lives to haul some of the passengers and crew, but only 41 people survived. What's interesting about this shipwreck is that they were so close to home. One pastor there in Mulfree who was assigned the task of visiting some of the homes to tell people that their loved ones were lost right there. Said that though they had safely circumnavigated the entire globe, that the royal charter went home right there within sight. The pastor went to visit and to seek to comfort the wife of the first officer of the ship. Pray with her at this time of calamity. And she was there sitting at her kitchen table. The pastor said, I can never forget the grief. She was so stricken. She was even tearless in her grief. And she wrung my hand and she said, so near home and yet lost. She had been sitting in the parlor with tea set, waiting for her husband to walk in the door. And 50 yards from shore, he perished. As I invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11, as I invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11, I want you to have that concept in mind. Being so close to life, and yet being lost. That's the circumstances that our Lord Jesus is addressing in this passage. Um, If you've been around, you know that we spent a couple of weeks... Responding to this interesting uh, situation in which John the Baptist found himself. And it was, um, he's in prison. Things have not unfolded the way he thought, even though he had so clearly announced and recognized and pronounced that Messiah was with us. And in the doldrums and darkness of prison, he had begun to question. Maybe this is just another prophet pronouncing and announcing ahead of time that Messiah is coming. He sent two of his servants to Jesus and asked them, are you the one? And we talked about John's doubt and how even strong, focused, spiritually minded, confident, spiritual leaders can find themselves in times of doubt. In the rest of the passage, Jesus ends up giving a, a message of support for who John the Baptist was, and then he changes his tone and he chastises those verbally for not paying attention to John in his announcement of who Jesus is. And then he turns the attention to himself and says, and you're not even paying attention to me. Let's read the passage. And I want us to see the gravity, the seriousness of what it was for these folks in this era to have so much of Christ and yet miss the way. And I wonder if there's people here this morning who've grown up in a Christian home, or you've been in church and you've heard so much of Christ, and yet you're not walking with Christ. You haven't found the narrow way and you're still on the broad road of destruction like the people in our story. Let's pick it up at verse 11 where Jesus, in Matthew eleven eleven where Jesus um, uh, begins to defend John the Baptist. He asks them, who did they expect to see? And then he says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Okay, so as great as John the Baptist is, he's not the Christ, and those who will come to Christ... Are even greater than John the Baptist in their spiritual stature, in the sense of they found everlasting life in Christ. Don't miss it that Christ is the key to the passage. John was the voice, and from the days of John the Baptist, verse twelve, until the kingdom of heaven, until the kingdom, until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. He's talking about there is a consequence to the gospel. We've talked about that in, in previous passages. And Jesus said, don't think, verse 34 of chapter 10, that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And we've talked about how the fact that the gospel riles the bloodlust of those who are antichrist. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept that he is Elijah who is to come. And it was prophesied that Elijah would come again, not in reality, but in the form of John the Baptist. And Jesus is announcing that this is the prophetic fulfillment of what the prophet said. There would come one, like Elijah, who would announce and prophesy and say, The Messiah is here, and John is the one. And he who has ears, let him hear. And that's a crucial statement then. Jesus is talking to an audience who also is doubting and who is wondering, following him around curious, but yet many not committed And he's saying, look, you have ears to hear. You've heard what John said. Now listen. He's the one who said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right. He who has ears, let him hear. It's a wake up call. Now to our text for today. And Jesus goes on and he says, but to what shall I compare this generation? And it's a a question. It's rhetorical. And it's spoken in such a way And in the context of the passage It's like I can't believe you people I don't know what to do with you people I've never seen a generation like this Why? Why did he say that? What shall I compare? To whom shall I compare this generation And to what? It is like children sitting in the marketplace Calling to their playmates We played the flute for you And you did not dance We sang a dirge and you did not mourn For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And if you're standing there and you're a Jew, you cannot believe what your ears have just heard. You have just been told... In your Jewish tradition and in your knowledge of the law and in your following of Moses and of your dotting of the I and crossing of the T. And you have just been told that the most despicable pagan culture and society that God ever wiped off the face of the earth, that had they heard the gospel the way you've heard the gospel, they would have responded. But you didn't. And therefore, you're going to end up in worse judgment. I don't think Jesus could have said anything more shocking to his audience than this. What are you saying? I've broken this down into three parts, and I've just called it three serious responses to Christ and the gospel. Embedded with Christ is their response to John the Baptist in the context of the passage. I recognize that. So John came preaching a gospel of repentance. Get right with God. The Son of Man is coming. He has His winnowing fork in His hand. If you want to live, turn your eyes on Jesus. That was his message. Jesus comes with an identical message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're not going to live forever. Get your eyes on Jesus. You need a Savior. And so Jesus uses three illustrations here. Or it turns out to be three illustrations for us. The first illustration is children playing in the street. And it's the first response to the gospel. Three responses that these people who were so near yet so far away had to Christ, John the Baptist message, and the gospel. The first response was that of being childish and uncooperative. Childish and uncooperative. Childish and uncooperative, verses 16 and 17. What's he talking about here? But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to their playmates. And they cry we played the flute for you and you did not dance. So then we did a dirge and you did not mourn. This is a picture of children at the marketplace, which was a very common public gathering place and it could have happened during a time of business when their folks, their mothers, or even their fathers had brought the children down to the marketplace while they were shopping. What did the children do? They went and they found a cleared spot off to the side or in between some market booths or on the end of the street where it was more open, and the children gathered there. It was an exciting day. Or even perhaps the community children were there in the market area Where market always was held, but it was the off day, and so the street was open, and so they would play in the streets. One of the things children would play in this era, they would play wedding, and they would play funeral. When they played wedding, they would pretend to play instruments. Can't you picture a child picking up a stick and pretending it's a flute or pretending it's their trumpet? And they toot toot out the, the melodies that they've heard at weddings and they play, these little children play wedding festival in the street. But you've got other children, and just the way children are even today, other children are saying, while somebody pipes up and says, let's play wedding! And they grab their sticks and they get information and they're playing wedding, and some other spoil sports are off to the side saying, no, let's play funeral. Well, they like to play funeral too, because in this culture, um, they even hired people to wail for them. And children mimic adult behavior, and, and so these boys and girls would play funeral. And some, some big old guy would say, I'm the corpse, you know, I'm the dead guy. And then they would pick him up, makeshift, you know, and, and they would do their dirge, and others would wail, and they would play wedding and funeral. But Jesus' point is that just like a bunch of children, we piped up the wedding the wedding music for you, and you said, nah, let's play funeral." So we piped up the funeral music for you and you said, nah, let's play wedding. You're never happier. You're like children trying to control and manipulate. And you're uncooperative. It's reflected in the way John lived. John had a message that was serious and more of a funeral dirge. Jesus comes and has a message that is more of a wedding feast. Remember, they even John's disciples even came to Jesus and asked him, how, how come... The disciples of John fast, you know, so many days a week and the disciples of Jesus don't fast. And remember, Jesus used the analogy. Well, when the groom is present at the wedding party, you don't fast, you party. And so there is a reflection even of the styles of ministry and the personality of the ministry of John the Baptist versus Christ in this. But Jesus is poking them in the eye. So look, John the Baptist comes and he pronounces death upon you and judgment and the winnowing fork is in hand and fire's going to fall and the Holy Spirit of fire is going to come and wipe you off the face of the earth. There's the funeral message. And you said, no, 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 let's have the wedding message. So he comes and he has the, the message of life and hope and healing. And they say, no, 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 we don't like that either. You see, they don't want to believe. They're content with what they have. Under the law and they think they're religious and they think they're good enough and they think John is crazy and they think Jesus is crazy. It goes on to say, for John came neither eating nor drinking. Okay, so there's the reflection of the funeral dirge. And he said to him, he's demon possessed. The second response to John and Jesus and the gospel by these people, not only, the first response is they're childish and uncooperative. The second response is they're critical and unfair with their accusations. Critical and unfair. Verses 18 and 19. John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, He has a demon. But the Son of Man, referencing Himself, Jesus said, came eating and drinking and they say, Look at Him. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Just always critical and unfair. Isn't that interesting? You know, when people don't want to believe, they will always just take the opposite argument. Have you talked to people like that? You're in a conversation and you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about the gospel, you might be talking about world religions and you're talking about interacting, and they come up with this, no, we can't do that, but but, but about this. So then you go there and you answer it and then they go back to another argument and they're just childish. They don't want to believe. And they don't want to play the game. They're just there to be difficult. And they're just uncooperative and they really don't want to believe. And after a while, you get in your mind and you think, like Jesus said, well, cast your pearls. Don't cast your pearls before swine. (laughs) Kind of shake the dust off your feet and go because they're just being difficult. They really don't want to know the truth. And that's how Jesus is saying about these people. You're like children playing. And we say, we're going to whistle one tune and you want another tune. So we whistle that tune and you want another tune. You're just childish. Not childlike. Jesus called for us to be childlike. You're childish, you're fickle, you're unhappy, you're 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 uncooperative. You don't want to believe. Secondly, you're critical and you're unfair. John came with a message that was serious. And you said he's demon possessed. You made up something. You knew he was they knew he wasn't demon-possessed. And so then Jesus comes and he's kind of got the opposite approach. Where he goes to the poor and the needy and he sits down with tax collectors and sinners and he's known for being at banquets and it's been kind of common in the last few years to to celebrate Jesus as a big party animal. I'm not saying that at all. Jesus never got drunk at a party. Jesus never disgraced himself at a party. Jesus was never inappropriate at a party. But Jesus wasn't afraid to go to where sinners were hanging out And show them everlasting life. And they often responded. These Jews who've been watching him and these folks in the community, they're just critical and unfair. It doesn't matter what message they give. You're demon-possessed? Well, then, if you're not demon-possessed, then you're a glutton and a drunkard because you go to parties. They don't want to believe. Have you ever talked to people who make these blanket statements about Christians and about Christ and I don't want to follow Christ because I knew a Christian one time and he was the biggest cheat I ever saw. You're nothing but cheaters. Cheated on his wife and he cheated on his income taxes and he was a deacon at the church. And they're they're acting like they've got this strong argument against Christianity and really that's not true at all. They just don't want to believe and they're thinking of something and it's critical and unfair. It's not a fair statement at all. It's very difficult to have Reasonable communication with somebody who's in that mindset because they really don't want to know the truth. In fact, they're running from the truth and that's why they're being critical and unfair. But of my greatest concern is the third illustration that we have. So we have children playing in the street, we have critical adults, and now we have sleeping cities. These three kind of different word pictures. And the third response to John, Jesus and the gospel is to be complacent and unconcerned. Complacent and unconcerned. Then he began to denounce the cities. By the way, the phrase, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds, it's like Jesus giving a sidebar word. You can say whatever you want, but the fruit of our message will stand alone. And hasn't it been true that the gospel of Jesus Christ through the centuries has borne a beautiful fruit? And changed lives. And the words of Christ are proven true over and over. And the word of God is proven true over and over. And wisdom bears this justifiable fruit by its deeds. The gospel has an effect. You can say whatever you want. You can be be, uh, unsatisfied. You can be unfair and critical. You can be complicated and difficult in your arguments against Christianity. But you just watch. And you tell me. You tell me what happened to Eugene Marceau when he was 16 years old. And you tell me that that this wisdom of Christ didn't bear out in its deeds the authenticity of the message. And you know people just like that. And we could go through the audience and you tell me the gospel didn't change Buddy King's life. It did. What a testimony. And you know people like that. So... Wisdom will be justified by her deeds. It's a proverb that Jesus says. It's reflective of, all right. you can say whatever you want, but the gospel will prove itself true. He then pronounces these woes upon the city. And it's the same kind of thing. It's their response to John, Jesus, and the gospel that he's after. How do you respond to this? How do you respond to Jesus? Well, look what they did. Jesus Jesus said, He began to denounce these cities and it, because they were, number three, they were complacent and unconcerned. So we've had these three groups of people, the children in the street, They were their response to John, Jesus, and the gospel was that they were childish and uncooperative. And then what they said about John and Jesus, these people were critical and unfair. And then these cities where Jesus ministered most of his public ministry... Were complacent and unconcerned. Then he began to denounce the cities, verse twenty, where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. And he says something very strong. It's a word of judgment. It's a warning word. It's like woe unto you. It's the idea: if you don't change, you know, you're going to hang at high noon. It's over. It's a judgment word. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So what's the deal here? Let's understand what we're talking about. So these communities, and some of you who've been to the Holy Land maybe can picture how this is. But Chorazin was a small village a couple of miles north of Capernaum. Capernaum is then mentioned in here very strongly, and these are Jewish communities, all right? And uh, they are along the Sea of Galilee there, and Bethsaida is farther north and west of Capernaum. All right, and so these are communities, and this is the area where Jesus did much of his public works of ministry. The miracles, the healings, the raising of the dead. So much of this happened in this area. We'll illustrate that further in just a minute. So here, who are Tyre and Sidon? Tyre and Sidon. Both of these cities were well known to this Jewish audience. They knew who these cities would have been. And they were Gentile, pagan cities. Okay, so... Jesus is contrasting these Jewish communities in his own backyard where he has done much of his public ministry and where the listening audience completely understands when he says Tyre and Sidon that they are seaports along the Mediterranean Sea they're Gentile pagan cities and they're known for their corruption their immorality and their godlessness we have some cities like that don't we? They're just known for it, right? Vegas, right? Places like that, just Sin City. They even have nicknames like that. These Jews would have known, these Jewish, the Jewish community would have completely understood what Jesus was talking about. And in Tyre and Sidon, sin was so excessive and idolatry so bold and harsh, they worshipped the Baals, The Baals were the ones that way back, one of the big pictures we have in our mind from Sunday school days is when Elijah took on the prophets of Baal. Remember, they were wicked, wicked people. Jezebel had had paid for them and and had them in her in her um, castle and in her buildings and she housed them. And false worship was huge, and it and it had a lot to do with sexual immorality and, and drunkenness. And you remember when Elijah was egging them on, and they were praying for rain. And remember, they started to cut themselves. Bloodletting was part of their ritual, trying to appease their gods the, of the Baals. And it was a horrible thing. It involved child sacrifice. It was terrible. It was base. And the Jews would have had nothing to do with it. In fact, one of the kings of Tyre was so wicked in times past that the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 28 used him as an example of who Satan is. The king of Tyre was a nickname for Satan. That's how wicked their leadership was. So you're a good Jew, you believe in Moses, you memorize the the Torah. And The the Pentateuch, and you know, you know, you're a believer in the God of Abraham, but you just can't stomach this Jesus guy. And Jesus looks at him and says, woe to you, Corzin! woe to you, Bethsaida, for if Tyre and Sidon would have seen what you have seen in front of your eyes, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, It reminds you of Nineveh, doesn't it? Remember the story of Jonah and Nineveh? Of course you do. And how God sent Jonah, his prophet, to go to this wicked city, would have been a city like Tyre and Sidon, where they were horrible people, known for their immorality, their debauchery, their wickedness, and their slaughtering of other people. Just a horrible people, base it's incredible what people can do to people when they get that godless. And we're seeing examples of it around the globe today. This godlessness. Well, Jonah, Jonah knew what they were like. He ate, he didn't want to go mess with them, so he, you know what he does. He buys a ticket in the wrong direction, gets thrown in the, in the sea, the great fish swallows him, swims him closer to where he's supposed to be, burps him up on dry land. He decides he better do what God wants him to do. And though somewhat begrudgingly, ultimately, he goes to this city and it takes him three days to walk around and to call for repentance. Think about how wild and weird and wacky we would think it is if somebody was down in Ransom, walking around through the racetrack and down through the neighborhoods, hollering out to the neighborhoods, people opening their doors and looking out. Repent of your sin. God is going to judge this community. You have time. Repent. Turn to God. He's your creator. Turn your face to Him. Fall on your face. Repent of your sin. And what would people say? You're nuts. (laughs) But he went to Nineveh and he called out for repentance and they repented. And the king led it, and they tore their clothes, put on sackcloth, took ashes from their fire heaps, threw it up in the air and stood under it and let it fall down on them, smeared it on their face. It was, in this Eastern culture, a form of their grief and their angst and their unworthiness. They're just a dirty, rotten sinner, and they tear their clothes and put on sackcloth. Very expressive, very emotional. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen. Tyre and Sidon, the worst cities you've ever seen? Worse than the Jersey Shore? Worse than Vegas? Worse than any rotten inner city place you've ever been? If they would have seen what you've seen, they would have torn their clothes. They would have been just like Nineveh. They would have repented. But I tell you, verse 22, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? So like Capernaum was his like select town where Jesus spent much of his ministry, his public ministry. That was home base in Capernaum. They were a prosperous fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had made it his headquarters. He did more preaching and more miracles around Capernaum than any other specific area in his earthly ministry. And look what he says to them. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Because they're like, oh, yeah, sure. We're good. We're good. Yeah. No, you will not. You'll be thrown into hell. And then he gives another illustration of another city. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Are you kidding me? Think about what their ears were taking in. They, they absolutely knew about Sodom. They absolutely knew about Lot and his daughter's and they knew that Lot had ended up pitching his tent towards Sodom and that Lot had eventually moved into Sodom and that Lot had sat at the city gates of Sodom and that Sodom was so base and so sinful that the men of Sodom were completely given over to homosexuality to the degree that when the angel came to visit Lot's home and they would have known this story completely, Lot came, led him into his home and it was new flesh. For the men of Sodom and they surround the house and it's as though the house is rocking ready to break off its foundations because they're pressing in in their lustful seeking after to the degree that Lot does what we think is unthinkable he takes his young beautiful daughters and puts them out on the front porch and says have them and they, they won't even have them they want perversion listen Sodom is so sinful that we name sin after it. We, we have certain despicable, unmentionable acts that are named after the city of Sodom. That's how the Jewish mind would have understood it as well. And they were from Capernaum. And they were, they were followers of the law. And they were people who lived for Moses honored Moses as the greatest prophet and Abraham and, and the pride of the fact that they were children of Abraham, they thought of themselves really good to the degree that they didn't even pay attention to Jesus. I don't need to pay attention to that guy. I'm good. And so their problem was that they were just complacent and unconcerned. And Jesus said that as immoral and filthy and rotten and sinful as Sodom was, that if they would have seen what you would have seen, they also... Would have repented And they would have remained to this day In other words, fire would not have fallen from heaven In other words on the, And he says specifically On the day of judgment You, Capernaum, will receive greater judgment Than Sodom itself I'm telling you You could have knocked him over with a feather It's like, you're kidding me This is just crazy Why? Why is it? I think that I think that what it is, is a lot has to do with this idea that Jesus was right there and they just don't care. I mean, take your Bible for a minute and turn to Mark chapter 4. And let me show you and illustrate how powerful this is, really. Okay, so this is the area that he's talking about. This area around Galilee, all right, and Capernaum and these cities. And I think that... The same is true for all of the cities in this area. And there was the area of a Decapolis there. There was at least 10 cities. And I think Jesus is just like we do. It's like, we're talking about something. Well, you could go to Ranson or Hedgesville. I mean, like any small town. And that's the way it is. And he's he's not naming the only cities. He's talking about the people where he did ministry. But in Mark chapter 4... And we know this well. We've already been through this. Matthew gave account of this. But let your eyes go to verse 35. Mark 4.35. And this is, what the, this is what Jesus is talking about. Mark, Mark 4.35 is the story where the disciples are in the boat. And then he was in the stern, verse 38, asleep. They woke him. And don't you care that I'm perishing? And then in verse uh, 40 and 41, he calms the sea. Alright, so at least some of them saw him control the sea. Then he lands on the shoreline, and you go into chapter 5, and this is the crazy man at Gadaree, and the whole community knew about it. And that's that strange ending where they say to him, leave our area. It's like, we don't even want you here. We can't figure you out. You scare us. Leave our area. That's when he put the demons in the hogs, and the hogs run off the cliff. And then Jairus comes to him and wants him to heal his daughter. That's the next story. The crowd is pressing in because they're curious. They want to see these miracles. And in the middle of that, the woman with the issue of blood touches his garment. He heals them. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. But look at chapter 6, how it begins. And he went away from there and he came to his hometown, Capernaum in Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. This is what he was talking about in the area where he's been doing all these miracles around them where it's very visible and they see all of this. And then Mark chapter 6 says, And he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Okay, so they, they asked these questions. Is not this the carpenter's son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? I and mean, we know his family. And are not his sisters here with us? See, Mary and Joseph had other children. They were Jesus' half-siblings. And they took... Look what it says. And they took offense at him. You bug me, Jesus. I don't like Jesus. Quit talking about Jesus. What's Jesus got to do with anything? And Jesus said to them, "...a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household." And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few of the sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Listen to this. He could speak and calm the sea. He could speak and and take demons out of a crazy man. He could speak and stop an issue of blood that had been there for years. He could speak and raise a dead girl from a, a girl dying and dead back to life. And it says when he get to his hometown, their unbelief was so thick that he he couldn't even do miracles there. And he marveled at their unbelief. Why? This is right here in front of you. Said, "There's a few thoughts about complacency, real quick as we wrap up. Complacency, you know, is to be self-satisfied, complacent." satisfied with the status quo see i has the idea of being unmotivated doesn't it it has overtones of carelessness or boredom if a if a guy who's supposed to switch over the rail tracks at a bridge or something for the train in the old days was complacent the train ends up rolling off the cliff because he was just complacent. He was careless, he was idle, he was lazy, he was sleepy, he was undisciplined. It has all of those overtones, doesn't it? Synonyms would be apathy, indifference, self-absorption. It's, it's like the teacher who was having trouble with his class because they just didn't care about learning math. And he had all these bad boys in the back of his class and he was struggling with them a lot. So he starts the class one day and he brings them up front and they still didn't pay attention. He moves the bad guys from the back up to the front. They still don't care. They don't care about this class. So in big letters on the marker board, he writes A apathy, A P A T H Y. Did I spell it correctly? And the one boy in the front row looks over and says, Apathy. And he says to the other boy, what is that? And the other boy said, I don't know and I don't care. That's apathy, complacency, indifference. You just don't care. This guy's calming the sea, this guy's raising the dead, this guy's healing the sick, I don't care. Who cares? It wasn't that they were homosexuals. It wasn't that they were perverts. It wasn't that they were drunkards. It wasn't that they were killing people like like the Ninevites did and stacking their heads up like piles of cannonballs. Filleting their enemies and tacking their hides to the wall? They were good people. They were children of Abraham. They had it together, but they missed the opportunity in their complacency, number one. It resulted in the tragedy of missed opportunities. Secondly, it carried with it a tremendous accountability and a responsibility, didn't it? You've had the Son of Man in your presence and you've done nothing about it. It resulted then in the horror of a Christless eternity. Number three, look what it says back in Matthew 11. And it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment than than the land of Sodom. And in fact, you think you're going to heaven, he said, but you're going to end up in Hades or hell. You know, part of what their issue was is their guilt was great. Their guilt was greater Because the opportunity was greater. The reality of the fact that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was right in front of them and they had every opportunity to believe and they disregarded it put a greater guilt upon them. You think apathy doesn't matter? You think complacency doesn't matter? You think to hold the pearl of great price in your hands and to disregard it or to trade it for gravel, you got the pearl of great price and chase after gravel doesn't hold an accountability and a responsibility. Wow. Jesus says, the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. The greater the opportunity, the greater the damnation if you don't take advantage of the opportunity. It reminded me of a quote of one of my favorite guys that I always talk about, Jim Elliot. And people were wondering and asking Jim Elliot, why in the world would you go to the jungles of Amazon? Who cares? And Jim Elliott gave a classic response. And young people in the audience who might be complacent or apathetic about Jesus, listen to this. Jim Elliott said, You wonder why people choose fields far from the states when young people at home are drifting because no one wants to take time to listen to their problems? This is in 1955. I'll tell you why I left. Because those stateside young people have an, have every opportunity to study, hear, and understand the word of God in their own language. And these Indians have no opportunity whatsoever. I have had to make a cross of two logs and lie down on it to show the Indians what it means to crucify a man. And when there is that much ignorance over here and so much knowledge and opportunity over there, I have no question in my mind why God sent me here those whimpering stateside young people will wake up on the day of judgment condemned to worse fates than these demon-fearing Indians because having a Bible, they were bored with it while these never heard of such a thing as writing. Whoa. I think he's right. It's what Jesus said. You've had every opportunity and you've just gone to sleep and you've been complacent and apathetic and on the day of judgment, it's going to be worse for you than these cities who would have responded to the gospel had they had it. It's a wake-up call for Fellowship Bible Church, isn't it? Who has had greater opportunity than us to hold God's Word, to turn on the radio and hear God's Word, to buy books and CDs and DVDs and know God's Word and know the Gospel and young people in the audience today, if you don't care, you better wake up. Because you, us, all of us in this room, there has never been a people or a generation that matches Capernaum like us who've had every opportunity to know and see the works of Christ just as clear as can be. You can get a Bible in any kind of vernacular you want to get it. You can get the slang Bible if you can't understand English. And if you like poetry, you can get the King James Bible and you can get what, the picture Bible and you can get the video Bible and you can get anything you want. And Jesus is right there in front of you. And you don't care. Jesus said, It's going to be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for you. Scary, isn't it? Scary. People with the greatest opportunity stand to face the greatest amount of guilt for being apathetic in the face of that opportunity. Some of us are 50 yards from shore and we're going to drown. We're right there. The gospel's right here. Capernaum was right there. And they drowned right in front of Jesus, but they chose to drown. And some of them, you know, it's because the gold in their pocket. They, they didn't swim, they sank. Missing the whole point. Let's bow in prayer. I'm going to pray in just a second, but with your heads bowed, Can I ask you if you are apathetic or asleep about Jesus? It usually results in the reality of the fact that it's because we're self-content, self-satisfied. It means you think you're good enough. With our heads bowed, can I just remind you that you're not good enough? That the Bible has been so clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means you cannot reach God on your own. And as good as you think you are, the Bible clearly says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And the Bible says that the wages of our sin and the wages of all the evil that we've done and the evil in our heart, the lust, the lies, the anger, the bitterness, the complaining, the wages of our sin is death. We cannot enter the presence of a holy God because of our sin baggage the only thing you can do is bring your bag full of sin and your heart that's dark with sin. And you come to the cross and it's there at the cross where Jesus paid the price for your sin. It's the whole message of the gospel and of John and of Jesus that Messiah has come. Repent of your sin. Don't miss it. Jesus even healed blind people right in front of him and lame people and raised dead. And they still just said, I don't care. And if ever we're living at a time when people say they don't care about the gospel, it's right now, right here in our country. But in this room this morning, will you care? Such opportunity, and with opportunity comes responsibility, and with that responsibility, if you reject, comes a greater judgment. It's exactly what the Bible says. So come to the cross today, my friend. Just bow your head before the Lord. Admit that Jesus is the Christ. Acknowledge that He died on the cross for your sin. Admit your sinfulness and ask God for forgiveness. It goes something like this. It's your heart, your plea, your cry, something like this. Dear God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And today I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He died on the cross for my sin and He rose again, according to the Gospel, the Scripture. Would you forgive me of my sin and make me your child? God will save you. He's faithful and just and he'll forgive you of your sin. And you'll be free from condemnation. You can do that in the privacy of your own mind. We're going to sing a hymn in a moment. And I'd love for you to come forward and meet with a counselor. or Come forward and tell me, Pastor Van, I just prayed and I asked God to forgive me of my sin in Jesus Christ. I'm born again. Father, you know our hearts and our minds here today and you know our great privilege of holding your, Bibles in our, your Bible in our hand. And we've had so much exposure to Christ and, and yet it's so easy to be complacent and apathetic. And some of us are so close to shore and we're never going to make it home. We're going to drown with our pockets full of junk from this world. Father, would you do a work in us and we come just as we are right now to be saved to renew our hearts and our minds, to fill us with a zeal for the gospel, that we would not be asleep or complacent or apathetic in any way about Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.